This is the Wife Wisdom Podcast with Christy Little-Jones of MrsChristyJones.com, episode number eight. In today's episode, we are going to talk about overcoming the storms of life. How do you handle them? How do you find the strength to push past them? And what do you do to create a thriving life after the storm is over? Hello, and welcome to the Wife Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Little-Jones. And every week on the show, we will have real talk conversations about cultivating the heart of a wife by preparing you to be a wife, become a better wife, and stay encouraged as a wife. For those of you who already know me, thank you. Thank you so much for being just a part of this brand new platform. I'm super excited that you are here. And those of you who are new and are finding me for the very first time, welcome to the family. With over 15 years of experience as a relationship coach, a marriage and family champion, and chief cheerleader for women all over the world, I am thrilled to share what I've learned about being a wife marriage, life, and really introducing you to others who have thrived in areas that you desire to grow in. So let's go ahead and get started. In today's episode, you are in for a real treat. I cannot wait to introduce you to my dear friend and sister. We've known each other for over 15, about really 14 years, she is an agent of change and thought leader in the disability community. She's an amazing woman. She is an awesome mom. Her story is incredible. It's amazing. You are, it's going to bring much inspiration, hope, encouragement. She's just so real. I cannot wait to just share her story with you. So Carmen, yes. are you here? Carmen Jones, here. I'm so excited. Not only is is she an amazing mom and woman and just one of the many women that I admire, but she's a mom to one of my favorite little ladies in the world, Natalie. And so I want to give a shout out to Nat <laughs> on the podcast. And um but you know what sis, you your story And just walking and doing life with you for so many years as a wife, as a mom, as a, just a woman who really wants God to use them to really find the gifts and discover and uncover the gifts that he has given you to be, and really be used as a vehicle to really bless people. You've just encouraged me in more ways. I can't even find the really, the words, the right words to say how much I've just enjoyed our, our journeys together. And I really want to share so much of what you have overcome and how you've overcome it. And you are still smiling and laughing through it. God is amazing. That's all I can say. He <laughs> redeems all the broken places. Mm. But I have to give a shout out to you, Chris, because you're one of the women on my front row and I adore you you are Christy Sunshine (laughs) and always (laughs) always have an encouraging word for me or for Nat and me and my family just love you and yours oh I love you too sis thank you so much for being here on the podcast um I just really want to you know you to kind of share the journey of you know we never can say when we make the decision to, to, to literally give our life over to God and make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, we don't necessarily know what that's going to look like. And your life of really learning how to overcome with grace and really to overcome and give yourself permission to really figure out how to create that and not apologize for it is amazing. So I would love for you to start sharing the story of when you started at Hampton University. Sure. 
So I went to Hampton in large part, which is a historically black college in Southwest, uh, in, uh, the Tidewater area of Virginia. I went to Hampton because I was the only black person in my high school graduating class of a public high school. Mm-hmm. And I knew I needed to go to an HBCU. And so I applied to a few, but Hampton was the one that I fell in love with, like the moment I got to campus. Um, I had a very um, enjoyable Hampton experience my freshman and sophomore year. You know, I, I, my major was marketing, so I was in the school of business. I had amazing um, relationships with my classmates. Um, you know, I was involved and engaged on campus in student leadership, and I pledged in a sorority and um, just was having a great, great time. And my junior year, between my sophomore and junior year, um, my parents purchased an apartment or a townhome off campus. I had my first job and bought a 1986 Hyundai Excel. <laughs> I remember my car payment was $149 oh. per month. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We wish, right? <laughs> right. And, um, you know, was living the dream. I was, you know, off campus, had three other roommates. It was really great. And during um, Thanksgiving vacation, Uh, One of my roommates and some of our friends decided to stay uh, in Hampton rather than go home. I had a job at Casual Corner Mm -hmm. and I was working and studying um, that weekend for finals. And so on our way, we went to Richmond um, and on our way back, we were in a car accident. I was driving uh, the car. Um, My car rolled over once and I was ejected out of my passenger window. And uh, my roommate says that my torso was going in one direction and my legs and in and it's by the grace of God that I'm, I'm alive, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my head hit the pavement. I'm just grateful there was no head injury in that process. There was a, a big gouge in my scalp um, that occurred as a result. And so instantly, you know, I could not get up. And it's sort of like what you would see in a movie. I remember seeing lights above me and my friends telling me not to get up and Mm. going in and out of consciousness. And I went to a local hospital and they told me um, they couldn't help. They flew me to the University of Virginia where they had a spinal cord injury um, unit. And I was there for the next four months. So um, that was, you know, the experience that where I heard from the doctors uh, that I was a paraplegic and that I asked him, you know, on a scale of one to 10, what chance do I have of walking again? And he said, hmm, I think a one mm-hmm. really was in my heart. I was preparing for him to say like a five or six. Wow. And I really wasn't prepared for him to say a one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so. Mm-hmm a process of rebuilding my life Mm -hmm. Um, I'm five foot ten I used to run up steps two at a time yeah Um, and so it was really an adjustment emotionally spiritually physically in every way and I was only 20 years old and when I meet 20 year olds now I'm thinking sometimes I'll think gosh I was that age wow and I cannot believe that I've made it through um, mm. through that initial trauma. And I'm grateful uh, that, you know, when, when you invite God into the circumstance, while bad things may happen, he promises that there will be some good that comes from it. And so I'm grateful that good has come from something that initially was so awful. Wow. 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 Did you know God before the accident? You know, I, so I went to Awana's when I was little mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, and my mother would always make sure that we got to church. So even if my parents didn't go, um, they were kind of spotty in their church attendance during some of my teen years, I would go with other people's family. Mm-hmm. And I just had a, a spot in my heart that longed for God. Now I, now don't get it twisted. I did want to see boys at church and stuff, like, <laughs> and stuff like that. So I don't want to make it seem like I was ready to preach. <laughs> but, but I can say that there was something in me that 
desired God. Mm-hmm. And I and the summer before I went to college, my father was very clear. He wanted me to be baptized. And I think in his mind, it was, you know, a religious act. And, and probably based on what he knew spiritually about Jesus, it was, you know, what you do mm-hmm. <laughs> when, when you are a Christian. Or I put that in air quotes, when you're a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was baptized and you know, said with my mouth that I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I cannot say 100% that I believed in my heart. Okay. Um, And so that was, you know, my journey. And then after having this car accident, my pastor who baptized me flew from New Jersey to Virginia. And in that hospital room, I definitely, show enough, rededicated my life. Mm. Wow. Wow. And so how did you start the process of rebuilding after losing your ability to walk at 20 years old? Hmm. Well, I, because I was so hungry, I I became very hungry for the things of God. um, But it had a motive behind it. So Hmm. um, while I was in the hospital, my father met a preacher Um, when he my dad was in the chapel praying for me when I went to surgery he met a preacher in the chapel um, who befriended his family befriended ours and you know he would come when my parents had to return back to New Jersey he and his family and then another minister would come and pray with me and talk to me about scriptures related to healing and just um, trusting God you know for the ability to walk again And so that gave me an anchor of hope and encouragement. And so I really, at that time, I didn't attach myself too closely with the other people in the hospital, in the rehab hospital, Mm because I thought, I'm not going to be like them because I'm going to walk. And while I started, what's amazing, and, you know, my motive was I'm going to read all the scriptures on healing and my job, and I was telling God, okay, God, when you let me walk or when you heal my body then I will go around the world and I'll preach for you. And Mm. when I started to really read beyond the scriptures about healing, I began to fall in love with my savior. And Mm. I wasn't trying to just get something from God, but I was um, basking in a relationship with God. And so while I was reading the scriptures and by no means was I mature, (laughs) but I was finding, you know, reading the gospel for the first time. And, you know, when you read um, that God loved the world that he gave his only son, and, you know, this had nothing to do with my healing. I just had to sort of sit with that, you know, Mm -hmm. that even while I was a sinner, Jesus came for me. So it became, my process of rebuilding really started from the inside out. Now I did have to go to physical therapy and that was like a job. Um, I did have, you know, it was six hours a day. Um, I did have to adjust to just life in a chair. They would take us out for community outings and, you know, people would look at you and things like that. And I was not very comfortable with that, but I just grew. My mother gave me good advice and she said, if you don't look at them, you don't know they're looking at you. Mm, (laughs) I love that. And so that was what helped me to just move beyond and um, rebuild. And then my parents were quietly working behind the scenes, even though I had not committed to return to Hampton. They were working with the university Mm. to make it more accessible for me to come back. And then they were nudging my friends to encourage me to come back. And so with all of that, um, I made that decision to return to Hampton. And, And that was one of... I would say out of like five best decisions, that was near the top of the best decisions I've ever made returning to school. Wow. Wow. So you were a sophomore at the time of the accident? A junior. You were a junior. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so um, you returned back to Hampton and then, you know, as far as where, where was your hope at that point to get married or to, you know, have a family? How did, you know, the, I guess the accident, did it, I guess, did it matter? Did it make a difference? Did it make you question if you would ever get married? 
I remember having a family meeting with my mom and dad and therapist. And this Mm -hmm. was before I was discharged from rehab. And they were talking about all the ways my life would be different. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I vividly remember my mother was quietly weeping because, you know, this was how life looked for her mm-hmm. 20-year-old daughter. They talked about relationships and they talked about, um, you know, the challenges of dating and all that stuff. And, and I heard what they said. And at that point, I didn't really know what my new normal looked like. I didn't know what life would look like. Feeling very heavy, like, I don't even know. You know, you have this dream for your life. And I did not know if that would happen for me, if I would ever get married or have children or anything like that. So I, but my first order of business was to return home to New Jersey and to get back to school. So that's what I tried to focus on Mm -hmm. and not so much go beyond that. Because if I went beyond that, and even to this day, there are things that come up. And if I go too far and allow my thoughts to take over, I will be down this rabbit hole of despair (laughs) and overwhelm that I cannot pull myself out of sometimes. So I just focused on returning to school and um, trying to regain my place on campus. Wow, that is so powerful. What a major nugget to really focus on what's right now. Like, as opposed to what's next year, what's five years, what's 10 years, what's 20 years, because we don't know what life will bring. That is huge, like in every single area, like focusing on what you are, where you were right now, just getting back to school. Well, you're right. And, and, you know, for my 20 year old brain, that's all I could handle. Yeah, honestly. Um, but I will say, you know, now that I'm older and have some, uh, what I'd like to think is some wisdom, <laughs> right? <my> belt, <laughs> you know, I do believe you have to be intentional about what you do um, in terms mm-hmm. of designing your life or, or creating the life that you want. But you have to be flexible enough that if something takes a detour, that you know that God allowed that detour mm. <laughs> and that he will bring you through it. And what I, what I often have seen is that when you go on the detour, there's so many rich things that come up that you get to experience. While not always fun, they prepare you for when you do get back on track. So, um, yeah, that's those are some... <laughs> Some little insights I've learned as I've rolled along my journey. That's awesome. That is so good. So now once you um, got back to school and you, so, and then you graduated. Yep. What was the next step? Like, didn't you at that point um, when you met Carlton, how did that unfold? So, I was supposed to graduate in 88, but because I missed most of my junior year, I ended up graduating a year later. So all my classmates were gone and I was involved in some campus programs, a student leadership program. And I had some friends there who lived off campus and I would sometimes go over to their house to study a bunch of guys and real great guys, nice guys. And so they had this roommate, Carlton, um, who uh, lived with them. And during the course of my going over to study and hang out and make buffalo wings and all that stuff, <laughs> I met Carlton. And we, um, I think I liked him first. Mm-hmm. But I think he sort of liked me, but wasn't ready to admit it. And one weekend he went back home to Northern Virginia and he called me before he left. It was sort of random. He called me before he left to tell me he was leaving. And at that point I thought, I got him. I mean, <laughs> you know, guys, guys don't check in to say, Hey, I'm going to be so gone. funny. <laughs> well, at least at that, that point, I think I was 21. So it, <laughs> you know, I, I knew the little games. And then shortly thereafter, this is the goofiest I wrote him this note to tell him how I felt uh-huh. and I, um, I was driving again at this point. So I drove out to the parking lot where I knew his car was cause he was in class. <clears throat> and when I was driving in the parking lot, he was leaving. I guess they got dismissed early and that threw off my whole point. 
So I ended up like throwing the note into his car and driving off. And then later that day me and we met um we met and talked and stuff so it was it was the goofiest girliest <laughs> immature thing but it was cute that is cute <laughs> I think we all have a story of that like similar to that where and so um you threw the note in the car embarrassed <laughs> right and drove away so what happened next so, I, you know, he and we went to, there's a beach near Hampton and we went to this little beach and we ended up talking a lot um, and, you know, that, and we did kiss. So that solidified the fact that we liked each other. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so the rest, I guess, is history. So we became an item uh-huh. and um, dated through college he's two years younger than me so we dated through college and I graduated first and he graduated after me and I decided to stay in Hampton Mm -hmm. after I graduated or in the Hampton Newport News area in large part because my parents home was not wheelchair accessible Uh and in large part because I felt very comfortable and looking back on that sis it was such a big deal for my mom and dad as I think about it to say hey, our daughter who's been in a wheelchair for less than two years, she can stay eight hours away from us. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's a big deal. So I commend you, mom and dad, for the the strength and fortitude to release me to to do Mm. that. Mm, That's so good. Yeah, your mom and dad are the bomb. They're like the model (laughs) mom and dad girl. Yes, you know I always say that. I know. (laughs) But that's awesome. And so then when... How like so? Once you graduated, then Carlton graduated. Then, yeah. um, at what point did you guys decide? Okay, we're gonna take the next step. Um, we had been dating um, almost four years, three years, okay. three and a half years, and he proposed. And not eight months after he proposed in 1992, nice at the Hampton University Chapel. Aww. and um, we lived in Northern Virginia in Alexandria first, and mm-hmm. then we moved to Arlington and were married. Um, he worked in the telecom industry, I worked for the government at that time, yes, and you know, just did did life and started our family nine years after we were married. Oh, wow. So nine. So let's move to when, okay. Nine years after you were married, you decided to start a family. And so take us along that journey of what that looked like. So B, you were in a wheelchair, you married this man and you guys were doing life together as husband and wife, nine years and decide to have a family. So Carlton had wanted to have a child before I did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I really was kind of freaked out about the notion of being pregnant and being in a chair. And I was afraid that it would be too hard on my body. I felt Mm -hmm. like it would have me um, bound, you know, on bed rest the whole time. And so I really was anxious about it. And um, I went to visit some doctors some high risk doctors, more or less, to get some assurance. Well, actually, initially, I wanted them to tell me I couldn't do it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, they're going to say it's too difficult and then I'll be off the hook. Well, I went to see this one doctor in Arlington Hospital and he, I actually prayed before I went in. I said, God, give me a sign if this is my doctor. And when I came into his office, his back was turned and he, you know, slowly turned around to greet me and he had this big, assuring smile on his face uh-huh. I thought dag nabbit I'm gonna have to <laughs> trust this man wow. and so shortly after that I was pregnant and um, went to a high-risk doctor uh-huh. and um, everything was fine for the first seven months very typical pregnancy even the cravings I craved Popeye's chicken for the first <laughs> and gained an inordinate crazy amount of weight and um and the seventh month through a sonogram discovered there was something that was different about my child. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they could, he could see a cleft, what he thought was a cleft lip. And then because I was 35, he wanted me to undergo um, some amniocentesis to see mm-hmm. if there were any other congenital issues. And that was a really scary time. Um, It was the only appointment that I went to the doctor without Carlton. And I 
totally uh, became panic stricken and Carlton came later. And uh, we waited three days to get the results of the test. And it indicated that the child had, you know, that the baby had did not have any other congenital anomalies, just a cleft lip and palate. Well, cleft lip, that's mm-hmm. all we knew. Mm-hmm. And so we had to prepare for that. And this was before these high resolution. Yeah. Um, Imaging. Yep. Tests. Yep, yeah. 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 But the doctor could tell. So when um, my son was born, he was delivered on his due date, his exact due date, because it was a sonogram. I mean, um, a C-section. Yeah. Um, They had to completely anesthetize me. That's a long story. But they had to completely anesthetize me. But even in that, that was the hand of God. Because Mm. had I been awake, I know I would have panicked. Mm. Um, And so when Marcus was born, he was not he had a cleft lip they discovered he had a cleft palate but then he they knew or he they experienced Carlton told me later he was unable to breathe and so they had to they were trying to get the endotracheal tube down his airway Mm. to get all the fluids out and he couldn't breathe and Carlton's you know to go from such a high of excitement to literally wondering if your child's going to live is pretty mm-hmm. much like having the floor come out. Yeah. And so they finally got it in, they got him stable, but they knew at that hospital, they couldn't keep him. And he went to Georgetown where they mm-hmm. had a NICU, a level mm-hmm. four NICU yeah. um, that could care for him. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you, they put the trach tube down so to get the fluids out and they you made it to Georgetown um, was it something, was it a procedure that was simple and easy that then he came home or did they have to stay there for a period of time? No, he was anesthetized for nine days while they explored what was really going on mm-hmm. in his airway. So I did not have the joy of holding my baby um, immediately. We visited him every day, but neither of us held him because his airway was just that delicate. Wow. It was they had his little hands tied down so he wouldn't in, inadvertently pull out the little tube that was helping him breathe. Mm. So when they finally did do an MRI, I think it was an MRI, they discovered he had this very teeny tiny airway that was probably smaller than the circumference of a coffee stirrer. Wow. And he had to go to surgery at nine days old to get the trach tube in. And I, and, you know, and I look back on that time and think back, I don't really think I tracked in my head. I knew that he was having surgery. I knew that they were going to insert this and it would help him breathe. But I did not realize the enormity Mm. of what having this little delicate airway meant. Um, I just wanted my child to be fine. So um, the long and short of it is after that surgery, Marcus was in the hospital for three months before he came home. Wow. It was important to me that he come home, um, and I say this carefully presentable because he still had his cleft lip Mm -hmm. and I didn't want people to come by and feel uncomfortable with his face. We loved his face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We loved him no matter what, but I just wanted him to have that surgery. So that was the last surgery he had before he came home. Uh, He was born in July. He came home in October. Wow. Wow. And so he had those two surgeries and then he came home and, and started just flourishing, growing. No, <laughs> he didn't. Um, he, the first night he came home was awful. Um, mm. We had all this hospital equipment and we had 24 hour nursing. Wow. Um, and the ventilator uh, device that he had was not the right system for him. Oh, and we didn't wow. know it. And we were back he started to get into respiratory distress the very first night he was home and we were in an ambulance that night Mm -hmm. taking back and in the first year Chris it was awful it was frequent difficulties with breathing um we were so familiar to the paramedics at in Arlington that when I saw one in public he said hey you haven't called us in a while Wow. So I, so he had probably that first year about 10 surgeries. Oh. Um, he had physical therapy in the home, occupational therapy, mm-hmm. and through it all, very sweet and loving and um, cuddly and just 
um, a wonderful, sweet disposition in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. But it was hard. I mean, I cannot lie. It was hard on our marriage. We Mm -hmm. had people in our house 24 hours a day. Um, It was hard on us financially. It it was just a very difficult time. But the joy of having our son Mm -hmm. alive really put everything else on the back burner. Mm, That's so good. Great perspective. You know, I can only imagine the toll that it took on your marriage. You know, even though you'd been married nine years where you guys gave yourself um, room to kind of get to know each other and get into a flow of marriage, you know, when you introduce a child, it's like brand new, right? It's like ground zero again, starting over. Well, not only is it like brand new and starting over, it was seeing if we could apply what we had been taught at that point, I would say as disciples, Mm. um, because there's no way you know that these scriptures are true until you have to apply them. (laughs) Come on, come on. (laughs) And, And so I, I, we had to, Carlton would say, I remember when Marcus was in the hospital, you know, like the fifth time he was readmitted, um, he would say, hey, Carmen, look, just look out on the on the kitchen floor. Don't you see Marcus crawling? It was like a faith act mm. where we would, you know, pretend that we could see him or visualize, I shouldn't say pretend, visualize seeing him and believing that we would see him walking around in a bouncy seat and all that yes. stuff. So it really was a beautiful thing. And we just, um, we really had to hold on to the Lord because it was the, my worst fear after a real difficult respiratory um, episode would be because Carlton would ride in the ambulance with Marcus and I would follow behind Mm -hmm. in the car. Mm -hmm. And I always had to get myself together. Like I would be weeping at home and had to pull myself together before I would head to the hospital and my biggest fear would that be that he would meet me in the parking lot to say Marcus didn't make it. Oh, my goodness. And every time I could get in the garage and not see him, I was like, okay, okay, go in, go in, go in. Everything must be stabilized. Wow. And so that helped a lot. Oh, my goodness. And so how long did this, this go on? Um, a year, the first year. Okay. Um, and then, and then uh, he began to... grow stronger and our hospitalizations were less frequent Mm -hmm. Um, but then we began to notice a lot of developmental milestones that he Mm. was not syncing with Mm -hmm. and that's when we began to realize okay there's more going on here than just a kid with a trach and Mm. breathing issues there were some cognitive issues um, as well And it really wasn't until we were around some of our friends who had children and we saw what they were doing developing that we really were clear something else was wrong. Wow. Now, did you, um, so at what point did you find out that, um, or did you go through kind of therapy? How did you figure out there was something wrong and how did you um, find the help that he needed? So it's really like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, Mm -hmm. No one told me, you know what, you need to do X, Y, Z. What I discovered was, you know, one thing would lead to another. So we would go to the doctor and the doctor would say, hey, have you thought about um, getting him checked out for this? Okay. So then that person would tell us, okay, you need this type of therapy then you also may want to see this specialist. Mm. So it really became the sort of snowball effect where we were able to put his care plan together, if you will. So he did have speech therapy because he was not eating with his mouth. He had a feeding to a G tube in his to his mm. stomach. He had a trach tube. So he had um, oral motor therapy. He had speech therapy. He had occupational therapy and physical therapy because as a result of all these hospitalizations, he had very low, excuse me, very low muscle tone. Wow. Wow. And so even fast forwarding, I remember, um, I don't know, Marcus probably was four, maybe five. I remember um, just 
the, well, actually, let me back up a little bit. So how old was Marcus when um, Natalie entered into your lives? So after having Marcus and all the things that went on with him, he, we came to discover he had something called a midline anomaly. So everything between his eyes were a little wider. The bridge of his nose was a little flatter, cleft lip, cleft palate, narrow trachea, a very small trachea going down to his stomach, even some things going on there, you know, just all the way down. It's a midline. Mm -hmm. And so we discovered that it had a genetic component. Who knew? And I was a carrier. Wow. So we decided, and we always wanted to have, um, expand our family through adoption, but we Mm -hmm. decided in view of everything and my age and my disability that we would start the process for adoption. Mm -hmm. So Marcus was two, a little, maybe two and a half, two, um, two and a half when Nat came home. And that was just a beautiful time for us because we, Marcus was strong. He was in school. He was in a, um, like a preschool. Um, and we were stable. It wasn't Mm -hmm. everybody else's normal, but it was our normal. Mm -hmm. And it was a really sweet time when she, um, came home. It was the quickest, I joke, the quickest pregnancy of my life. <laughs> From the time we submitted the application to the time she came home, it was 12, little less than 12 weeks, like nine weeks. Wow. That is amazing. Nine weeks. I remember seeing you when you were going to get her outfit. Um, yes. <laughs> her welcome home outfit. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday and I can't believe that it's been 15 years. That's just wild to me. So, um, so Marcus was two and a half. Natalie came home yep. and, and then you just were just happy little family. Yep. We were and, just, it was very different um, because, you know, we still had nurses. We still mm-hmm. traveled with suction for mm-hmm. to suck in Marcus's airway. He still had all these therapies. And, you know, when you have a child with significant disabilities that's considered medically fragile, mm-hmm. all those appointments, that's like a job in and of itself. Um, and a, as a result, a lot of families can't have two people working, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I'm grateful that we were able to juggle it all, but it was, it was, a challenging time in that in that regard but we were still doing our thing you know although it wasn't like everyone else's thing everybody was good everybody was healthy Marcus was learning Natalie was growing and we were we were in a good space that's awesome that's awesome and then um take us to the I think it was a summer um when you sent the kids to be with your mom this was what you was seven years later. It was two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. And we, I think you were, were we out together? No, um, we were. Um, was it the summertime? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, it was summer. Mm-hmm. And you've had a life of really learning how to overcome, how to give yourself permission to re- recreate what your new normal look like what life looked like you know and having a son having to be in after 10 surgeries and in and out of the hospital and and having to manage even the angst like you said driving to the hospital I can't imagine having to do that all you know so many times living with nurses and then you adopted a beautiful little girl and and how you know, and then you fast forward, you get to the, this summer where it's a normal summer. Mm-hmm. And what happens? The floor fell out. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I had just accepted a position at the Department of Agriculture um, as a part of the Obama administration, which was such a privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, Carlton was in Africa on a work assignment and my children were in Florida with my mom and dad. Um, the night before I was supposed to go, we were all meeting 4th of July weekend in Atlanta to get the kids and then, you know, finish out our summer. 
<clears throat> that night. Um, Mark, I was at Busboys and Poets with two friends, and I received a phone call that Marcus could not breathe. And, and Carlton called me. He was actually at the airport. He called me weeping because he said, Carmen, I called at the exact time this crisis was occurring. And he was talking my dad through trying to save our son, mm-hmm. which was just awful. Mm-hmm. And I think I screamed in the restaurant. I wheeled out quickly. My friends, we went directly to National Airport. Um, you were out with Pastor Donnell, yeah, Pastor, and I called him. And by the time I got back from National, because all the flights had left that night, you guys were at the house, yeah. And a few other friends came over, and we just prayed. And at that that night in particular, I was petrified to answer the phone, especially if it was from my father, mm-hmm. because I was scared for bad news. And so. Um, you know, I got through the night. My friend Robin booked the ticket. We were on the 6 a.m. flight to Tallahassee. My mother met us at the airport, and we went directly to the um, hospital. And I remember little Natalie looking like a deer in the headlights, just looking so shell-shocked. Yeah. And it, it makes me sad to con- even think about it. Yeah. Um, and then going to the hospital and seeing the look on the doctor's face. And I had seen a lot of doctors around Marcus and when he's had crisis, but this doctor was a little different and he looked depleted and he started mm. to tell me all the things that happened during the night and how um, he started having seizures and things like that. And he said the next three days are critical um, for us. And he said he's on a ventilator but he's not, he, he's not conscious. So um, we just began this prayer vigil um, to really surround him with a lot of love and prayers. And um, Carlton came later that day because he was flying from Senegal. And, you know, we both wept because we knew when they told us how long he had been without oxygen, Mm. how long, you know, what type of tests we would have to do to check for brain activity. We knew that this was not the typical type of fight we'd been in before. So our pastor flew down um, to be with us and our friends just kept us lifted in prayer and through that six days, um, we started to, we saw little glimmers of hope that he would regain something, but then that quickly declined. He, and I, my prayer, and I would rub him and just say, Marcus, just let us know what you need. Let mm. us know how we are to support you. And his organs started shutting down. And so mm-hmm. we we um, met with the woman Carlton said, and I believe this was definitely the Lord leading. Um, he said, Carmen, what if we do organ donation? And, you know, you go from mm-hmm. your kids are yeah. <laughs> having a fun vacation with your parents to you're talking about donating organs. Yeah. And so we met with the organ donation coordinator and the fast to fast forward that, um, there were no organ donation centers throughout the country that wanted his organs because he was born with all these different things that went on with his health. And that was a kick in the gut because we were really trying to do something honorable. Yeah. So um, the doctors decided that they would still what they call, and it's such a uh, awful term, harvest his organs Mm. and see if they were viable. And then if they were, they would, to give them to a recipient Mm. so the worst day of my life was the day we had to say goodbye to him Mm -hmm. and um pastor donnell was there my family was there carlton's family was there and everyone took time by themselves but then when carlton and i had to say goodbye it was just Mm. surreal yeah um and what helped to get me out of that stupor of grief and shock was leaving the hospital, Natalie looked up to me with her five-year-old eyes and said, well, who's going to take care of me? Wow. And I, it was like someone slapped me on the face and I said, I got to get myself together. (laughs) And so um, they called us to tell us that they 
that the kidneys were viable. And that was heartbreaking because then we knew for sure, for sure he was gone. Yeah. And um, we had to get back to Arlington. And so probably what made it also awful is that it was like July 9th, I think. And Marcus's birthday is July 11th. Yeah. Yeah. And so we released balloons in Florida with my family um, to honor him. And it was awful. Yeah. And then that Sunday we left to come back to DC and plan his memorial service. And mm-hmm. it was just um, looking back, I'm not quite sure how we made it through that, but Carlton said something the morning. No, he said something to Pastor Donnell after Marcus passed that still stands. He said, God's grace is greater than our grief. Mm. And that has been true. <laughs> that has been true, at least for me. And I can see in Natalie that God has, you know, given us of the gladness in the midst of mourning that that the weeping did last for a while it, it lasted for a long while but yeah. joy joy did return and you know when you're on the front end of grief you don't think anything good will ever come it feels like you're under cloud cover mm-hmm. and you see everybody living living their life and the sun is shining where they are but you feel at least I felt like just cloudy and just very sullen and it was hard um and and Natalie had her grieving and that was hard too because she was there when this episode occurred and so my friend told me um who is a counselor she said you got to get your oxygen mask on to -hmm. help your child get hers on and so we really went to counseling I was very intentional about good emotional health and um we we I can say honestly that we did our work. Now wow. I will say Carlton, you know, everyone grieves differently and he didn't get that type of emotional support. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that, that was not positive yeah. <laughs> as an outcome for him. Yeah. And so um, that is such a key Um, component, I think, to grieving. Um, When you go through something so traumatic that you need to, one, give yourself permission to grieve, but you need the support to help go through that process. And so what happened because he didn't get that emotional support and to help grieve? He was hurt. He was crushed. You know, the God that we served for so long that we believed um, you know, that we believed would, that this would not be unto death. You know, you, you have to deal with the, th- if you know Jesus and you have a prayer that has gone unanswered where it's catastrophic, like the loss of life and you're believing for someone to live, you have to recalibrate your theological yeah. expectations. Like this does not feel like the God that I've served would do this to me and he was angry at God Um, he was hurt and wounded and you know it seemed that he got some solace when he would travel internationally Mm. which became more and more frequent Um, and you know our family didn't get the attention that it needed Mm -hmm. to really walk through that season of grief And so as a result of that and some other things, um, our marriage fell apart and we, we split two years after um, Marcus passed away, which was another layer of grief. I mean, I had to walk through that with Natalie. I had to walk through that with myself. Um, And it was just, you know, that two years between 2009 to 2011, it was just really, really tough. And I'm profoundly grateful. And I'll say in public for friends like you, I'm going to start to cry. No, (laughs) who really, who really locked arms with us and let us know that we weren't out there by ourselves and that we would not um, be forgotten. (laughs) And so I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. Amen. Amen. You know, 
Um, I feel like it's so important and to really even recognizing the signs of our lives when God brings people into our life because he puts them there for a reason. So even the relationship that we fostered early on when you brought Natalie home and the friendship that they, that your daughter and my daughter developed over years, best friends, like for life, like going, planning college and you know what I mean? Like it's such a beautiful thing, but God knew what we needed. He knew that we needed each other throughout the journey. And I think that's such a important piece. So I'm, I feel humbled and grateful and honored that God would choose me and my family to really just link arms and do life with you and yours. So, um, you know, it's because we're talking about overcoming the storms of life, sister, you've overcome the storms of life in a way where, I mean, the, the beautiful laughter that you have and the chuckle and the, and the perspective and the positivity and the hope and encouragement and trust and the push to keep going. I marvel at it. I've known you intimately for over a decade and a half, and I'm still, I still marvel at that. So how, what can you share that will encourage our listeners to continue to like how help them overcome, to not stay stuck and um, unravel at the seams, but to continue to overcome and push and, and shift to really give themselves permission to create a life that thrives. That's a loaded question. (laughs) So, so you know that you you have had a front row um, yes. vantage point. So <laughs> I should ask you, well, what have you seen? <laughs> I don't know what I, I don't know that I've ever said, um, okay, these are the five steps I must ah. go to try to get my life back. But I will say this. I am um, two things. I'm naturally, my disposition is probably naturally sunny and pleasant. Yeah. So grieving for me was just such a drag. Yeah. It just, you know, some people kind of stay there, right? Comfort, yeah, they're comforted yeah. by it. That did not feel normal to me. So I knew I did not want to stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really, um, as I mentioned before, very uh, intentional about getting counseling. So that mm-hmm. was one thing. And then the second thing is, I am joined at the hip with you about being like a self-help guru, but a growth, a growth guru. So I read a lot of books. I listened to podcasts about people. I remember one person's book I read initially, Elizabeth Edwards, who is John Edwards' wife, former presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. And she had um, lived through the death of her son and then cancer and then her husband's infidelity and you know, there are a lot of things that were different, but I wanted to glean anything from her that I could about resilience. Mm. That was the name of her book, which is called Resilience. And so I read books. Um, I spent a lot of time journaling. There was a time I did not really feel connected to God after Marcus died, Mm -hmm. but I always would put on Christian music and those became my prayers. So while Mm. I wouldn't pick up my Bible, um, I would sing the lyrics of these songs and I believe God honored it. Mm. (laughs) I I definitely do. Um, And then I slowly started to come back to church. One of the things I would say for people who don't have faith and maybe are seeking or people who have faith and they've been derailed yeah, is that to be as honest with God as possible Mm. about your pain. Mm. And I recall very many days saying, God, you picked the wrong kid. You picked the wrong grandparents. You picked the wrong family. Mm -hmm. This is not fair. If I tried to honor you and this is what you give me, you know, I was, I'm that Mm -hmm, real. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I feel like Job's wife, curse God. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I I am not trying to go down this road with you anymore. And one day it dawned on me, I guess me and Jesus have been hanging so tight that I was like, okay, where am I going to go? Yeah. And I slowly, and I feel like it was a crawl. I slowly crawled back my relationship with God. Wow. It started with the Priscilla Shire event 
um, at McLean Bible Church. Mm-hmm. She came and I felt like, okay, she shared some hope and I can trust God again. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I would, I, I would not go to our church as much because our church was small and I just didn't, it was too many memories and my grief was too heavy yeah. and I could just go places to churches, big churches where I could cry and they think it's the Bible. Right. <laughs> right. And so I, but I knew that I needed to go and my soul started to get satisfied. One mm. other thing I would say um, is the importance of journaling and also self care. Yeah. I didn't have the money, but scrounged the money. And I used to get massages. I had one of the mm. subscriptions to Massage Envy. Yeah. And I would go to Massage Envy once a month just to get a little bit of relief and mm. self care to check out for a bit. Mm. So those are probably a few of the things that I've done to help me. And then I would say since then, um, I started a mindfulness practice mm. where I um, use this app called Calm and it really just helps me. It's not woo-woo at all. It's just helps a lot to get focused and to release some stress. Mm. Um, and also I, I do do, and I know you do too, um, affirmations mm-hmm. about my life. Mm-hmm. So powerful. That's so good. So see, you did know some steps. See, <laughs> you did have some steps. That is so key. I think um, one of the things that I love so much about you is is really your freedom to give yourself permission. Like, I love that. That is so difficult for so many women that um, they don't give themselves permission to be honest with themselves, honest with God, honest with I need counseling or I need help or support because they have this innate thing going on where we feel like we need to be Wonder Woman, Superwoman, like we cannot show any softness or quote unquote weakness. It's so to give yourself permission. I love, love, love that. And so being intentional about getting counseling and knowing that um, I've heard numerous successful people talk about how they had to study with the people who had done it before. They were on yes. podcasts and reading books and they stayed in this place of reading and learning and growing personally. Like I have to stay in this place of learning and reading and growing and listening like constantly. And um, journaling is so critical to, I think, being honest with God, like that exercise of it's so freeing to be able to be honest and go all in and like, God, you got the wrong family. You got it wrong. You got it wrong. But to be honest and give yourself space and permission to do that, it really is freeing. It's really freeing. And so, and then the self-care piece and, and mindfulness, I think is, is really the cherry, the the whipped cream, the icing, it's really, it's a necessary thing that really is, again, but it's the, it, I think it stems from the permission piece to give yourself permission to go get massages and, and do things that, that bring peace and joy and not feel guilty for doing that in, and, you know, like you said, even scrounging the money to have a monthly membership to getting massages, I think is so great. And of course, we know the power of affirmation because the power of life and death is in your tongue. So we know that that is going to be something so powerful that God will use to really shift um, people who are really in that place of grief or that place of being stuck and not really knowing how to get out of it. Um, well, let me say this, yeah. and this doesn't have to only deal with grief of loss, but anything where people feel stuck. So it could be a, a relationship that you thought would turn out one way and mm-hmm. it didn't, or just a financial pressure that is, seems insurmountable. I heard early in my grieving with, after Marcus passed a very powerful quote, I think it's by Robert Frost, mm-hmm. and it says, the only way out is through yeah and I knew in that moment that the only way we were going to get through this is that I had to wallow in the yuck of it Mm. in the the pain of it and get healed from it and then you know come out on the other side victorious because what I know about grief or even relationship failure or financial pressure yeah you do not address it 
you are going to have that thing follow you mm. for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I refuse to have my Marcus hurt and my marriage hurt. And, you know, there was some residual financial hurt, all yeah. of that stuff follow me around. And, mm. and there has been, and, and you say you've seen it and I feel it that there has been tremendous healing yeah. in my life in yeah. my heart. And I think it's Psalm 143 verse seven, I think that says he heals the brokenhearted and he mm. binds up their wounds. And that scripture has given me such great comfort as a mm. promise that God can heal anything yeah. that's broken. Mm. It, now, I, what I will say about my life and about the person who's saying, but it's supposed to look like this. So for me, it was supposed to look, my broken heart was supposed to be healed and my body was supposed to be healed. Yeah. And in this case, a lot of stuff has happened that I didn't anticipate, but mm. in my soul, my soul is healed. My mm. heart is healed. And so that gives me the zeal to continue to live life fully, wheelchair, yes, <laughs> aging with a wheelchair, <laughs> anticipating God will bless me with a husband, yes. all that stuff. I'm just excited about the future. So, wow. That is so, so beautiful and rich and so strong. Cause that's what one of the, the last questions I was going to ask you is like, what's next for your future? <laughs> well, as you know, uh, <laughs> Natalie and I have, um, relocated to the Atlanta area near yeah, family. Yeah, yeah. And while I would return back to Washington tomorrow yes my child is thriving Amen. and that was that was such a a thing that I you know I, I was yeah. wondering if God would answer but she is really thriving and I'm, I'm thankful for that yes. so we are here um we are recalibrating uh in terms of just our life here and getting involved mm -hmm. um, professionally. I'm still uh, working as a consultant and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. And we are um, in the process and I can't wait till you visit of building a house Yay. that will be accessible, completely accessible, um, which is the first for me in 32 years. Wow. <laughs> I can't wait to go through doorways and not have to push a certain way where I don't yes. put my fingers. <laughs> yes. That oh is God. so awesome. So what, any last minute um, thoughts or, or words of wisdom that you want to leave our listeners? Sure. God loves you. The, your days have been your steps have been ordered. And this is a prayer. I guess I'll close with this. There was probably two years ago, I just started praying this prayer because there was a lot of uncertainty. Some of my contracts were not, um, some, you know, business took a dip and I was uncertain about a few things regarding Natalie. And, you know, I just wasn't quite sure. And, and um, Psalm 37 verse 23 and 24 is this. The steps of the godly are ordered by the Lord. He delights in the details of our life. And if we stumble, we will not fall because he holds you by the hand. So trust that your steps have been ordered. Trust that the details, all the stuff that you're dealing with, um, God delights in. That blew my mind. He delights mm. in it. Nothing is too heavy. Um, you're going to fall. And if you do, if you're going to stumble, but you won't hit the ground, you're not mm. going to bottom out because God is holding you by the hand. Mm, that's so beautiful. So beautiful. Wow. sis! thank you so much for sharing your journey of hope, of encouragement, of restoration and restart starting over and resilience. And, you know, I just believe that there, our listeners will be encouraged and know that they're not alone in their journey of overwhelm and grief and trauma. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your transparency, vulnerability, honesty, and just being such an, um, such an intimate part of my life and my family's life. I love you. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for being a part of the Wife Wisdom Podcast. I love you. Love you too, sister. Alrighty. Bye. Bye. Wow, what an amazing story of resilience, of overcoming, of really shifting your mindset 
and positioning yourself to live a life of positivity after the storms have really wrecked havoc, right? Wow, what an amazing, amazing story and testimony to God's faithfulness and promise. So super excited that you guys joined me and Carmen today on the Wife Wisdom Podcast to just hear her story. I pray that it was encouraging and uplifting and bringing you and brought you a lot of hope. And so I would love to hear from you. Please shoot me an email to hello at mrschristyjones.com or go to my website mrschristyjones.com and just I'd love to just hear your thoughts about any of the episodes but today in particular was just so great just so you know every Monday by 8 a.m eastern standard time we have a brand new podcast a wife wisdom podcast waiting for you and so Because we are getting ready to launch some really cool programs for you ladies, I would love to invite you to become a part of our community. So you would go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash join wife wisdom to get on the list of upcoming programs and events. You can also subscribe to the wife wisdom podcast via iTunes or Spotify, as well as even the podcast app. But before we go, can I ask you to please listen to the other episodes and to share them with your sisters, your friends, the women that you know, this would really be a blessing too. That would be amazing. Thank you again so much for listening. I appreciate all of you and I look forward to seeing you next week. The Wife Wisdom Podcast with Christy Little-Jones was created to help you cultivate the heart of a wife by giving you practical tools, tips, and techniques to live happily ever after. Well, at least most of the time. (laughs) So until next week, keep learning, keep listening, and keep love first. Bye-bye.